Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You can find it in your Pew Bible on page 923. We will be looking at Acts chapter 14 this morning. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, in the, uh, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God has done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, it is your word that says, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it is the words of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, in prayer, sanctify them by the truth. 
Your word is truth. And that is our prayer this morning. Holy Spirit, would you do such a work? Speak, O God, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We love to think about heroes and leaders, models, perhaps of the faith or perhaps in the world. We look for those who show bravery and courage against all odds, those who demonstrate some of the highest levels of loyalty and devotion. And there are many throughout history. I'm sure many of you could name some, some of your favorites. Perhaps some of you might remember that of Eric Liddell. Do you remember him? He was a Scottish rugby slash sprinter. There's a movie called Chariots of Fire, if you've ever read it. What do we learn about Eric Liddell in that movie? He was participating in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, and he was favored to win the 100 meters. But he had a conviction. He had a conviction that I do not participate, I do not play on the Sabbath. My conviction is that I worship God. And so he did not run the race in which he was favored to win. Instead, he raced in the 400. And if you know the story, or if you don't, I'm about to ruin it. Sorry. He won. What if he didn't? Think for a moment on this great leader who shows loyalty unto the Lord in perhaps the world's greatest scene. And he won. And we're excited. But what happened if he didn't? Would you look at him as a great leader or would you look at him as a fool? You could have won an Olympic gold medal, one that few people win, fewer people participate, or that's actually opposite, fewer people win, few people participate. Was he a fool? How would you think about that story if it wasn't so victorious for him? You get a little bit of a picture of that this morning, don't you? You see Paul and Barnabas entering into different cities with a great desire to preach the gospel and, in fact, do preach the gospel, and yet their extreme experience of temptation and persecution. Would you still do that? Would you be a part of a mission like that? In considering Acts 14, I want to actually start at the end And then work backwards. Paul and Barnabas would not have known the end until they have lived it. But what they say is quite helpful in interpreting the entirety of the chapter. If you look at the very end in verse 27, what is it that we read? And when they, that is Paul and Barnabas, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Luke's giving us the first missions conference the first report of what God has been up to in the world by him. Paul and Barnabas, they're on their first missionary journey. It was quite the journey. They went to several places, traveled many miles, quite a distance, and saw several things. But what is it that they report on? What do they bring? I want to first make an observation Did you see how Luke records it in verse 27? And when they arrived 
and gathered the church together. There's an implication there. You see, this missions conference that is about to take place is not meant for the missions team. It's not meant for those who esteem themselves to be excited about mission or missionaries. You get the idea that the entirety of the church gathers together and we want to hear, Paul, Barnabas, we prayed for you, we sent you. What is it that happened? They all gather together. But that doesn't happen as often now, does it? When you hear of churches who have missions conferences, they're not always well attended. Sometimes they are. But I don't think Luke's description would be the description of many missions conferences. Why is that? Will you permit me to say a few difficult things? I think it has a lot to do with what Paul and Barnabas say and what they don't say. What happens in our modern understanding of missions conferences? We want to hear about what they've been doing. How many houses have you built? What schools were you serving in? How did you help the orphans? What sports ministry have you been a part of? And hear me say it right now, those are all good things and they're all very important. That has nothing to do with what Paul and Barnabas just said. When they think about missions and a mission report, what is it that they look at? What is it that they say? What do they give their attention to? And I want to ask three questions. Where did they go? What did they do? Or what did they do while they were in these places? How did it go? And what was their focus? To do so, I want to ask those two questions in two different locations, and then we'll finish with the focus. What did they do and how did it go? We'll look at them in two different cities, and then we'll finish with what was their focus. They begin at Iconium, and then they move on to Lystra. They finish in Derby. But what do they find themselves doing and experiencing? Well, let's look at what happens in Iconium. You can see it in verses 1 through 7. They arrive, and to put you on the map, you're somewhere 90 to 100 miles southeast of Antioch. And when they arrived, they went to the place that you probably would have thought that they went. They went to the synagogue, and that would be a natural place for them to go. It's a place in which people are gathering to hear from the Word of God, which would be the Old Testament. They want to worship. They want to know something of God. They want to understand what it means to love and live for God. They have an audience that is prepared to hear, and so they go there. And what do they do? Well, Paul begins to preach. And what characterizes his preaching? Did you see what Luke said? Verse 3. They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. What characterized his preaching? It was boldness and grace. Boldness and grace. Perhaps they seem at odds. How could one graciously preach bold or boldly preach grace? How is that possible? What is Paul saying in his sermons? How is it gracious? What is he telling the people of God? Well, you cannot earn this. You cannot live up to this. You will not accomplish or achieve this. It matters not who you are. It matters not where you are. It matters not what you do or where you've come from. There's nothing about you that is inherently willing to receive this. It is a measure and a mission of grace, and it is God's grace, 
And Paul is preaching the grace of God. And yet as he's preaching grace, he's no less bold. He's boldly proclaiming who is the Christ, the one true God. What is he not saying? He's not saying to them, if you come to Jesus, all will be well. Come to Jesus. He's going to fix your problems. You'll live your best life. He's boldly letting them know, if you are outside the people of God, you are under the wrath of God, justly deserving His displeasure unless He shows mercy and grace to you. He's preaching the gospel. But how did it go? How would you suppose a grace-centered, boldly preached sermon go? Paul seems to seem two different effects. Some believe and some do not. There was such an opposition that you find two groups of people partnering together that literally have nothing in common except one thing. They both hate Jesus. Jews and Gentiles have just now formed a pact against the gospel and they do not associate with one another. They're antithetical. They represent two different things. They want nothing to do with each other and yet they have come to this common ground of we oppose God. We oppose Christ. And so what happens? Well, Paul preaches all the more. As many believe and yet many oppose, it says that he preaches all the more. He does not run. He does not leave just because there is a measure of persecution or difficulty. He doesn't slow down. He stands firm against the enemy and he stands firm against opposition. You know, there's a story told of John Wesley On one occasion, John Wesley is entering into a village. Perhaps he's been there before, but he he encounters a bully. And, uh, well, as the story is stated, Wesley is coming down the road, and the bully is coming down the other road. They're obviously in carriages, so that makes it even all the more cool. So here's a carriage coming. Wesley's going towards it. And you notice that this bully is not moving over. He's in the middle lane. You don't like those kind of drivers. And he's not budging. And so Wesley turns off the road all the way into a ditch. And as the bully passes by, he turns to Wesley and says, I never turn out for fools. To which Wesley replied, I always do. Do you see such boldness? And yet it was gracious. He does not shriek in the face of opposition. He stood firm to who he was and what he believes, and yet he does not pick a fight. He's bold and he's gracious, and Paul is preaching such. And there does come a time in which they do leave, and it doesn't mean they have lost their boldness. They just, they have consciousness. They have common sense. What do they learn? It's no longer just, we don't like you, Paul. We're coming to stone you, Paul. We're coming to kill you. 
And perhaps there is a moment in which your life is to be given for the sake of Christ. But this doesn't seem to be that case. And so Paul and Barnabas, upon hearing that they are going to be stoned, they leave. They're leaving Iconium and they're going to go to Lystra. How do you evaluate what has happened so far? The best consensus that I can provide for you comes from Hubert Davis. Y'all know Hubert Davis? He's no grand theologian. He is the coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels. And many of you watched the national championship. And do you remember that halftime speech? The reporter's trying to ask him a question. He says, it's fun. And then he looks at her and he says, it's live action out there. Live action. But we're ready to go. That's characterizing Paul and Barnabas. It's live action. I see the stones being picked up. They're coming my way. We're not going to stop. We have another place, another city. And so they leave Iconium. They go to Lystra. It's a Greek or it's a Roman colony. Iconium is a Greek city, but they're in a Roman colony. That is Lystra. And yet you see a pattern here, don't you? Perhaps as you were reading, you thought, I've heard that before. This seems so familiar. Where have I heard that an apostle comes in, finds somebody who has an inability to walk, and he heals them? That seems to me that there's a pattern with Paul and Peter. Do you remember that story chapters ago in Acts chapter 3? That there is a lame man, and Peter heals him. Why is there a pattern? I think Luke is trying to say to you, because it's always the same. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. We all need Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. The pattern of grace and salvation is the same. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke is preparing a scene for you. He wants to emphasize the condition of this man. What does he say? There's a man sitting who could not use his feet. You would already assume something about him, and so he emphasizes it again. He was crippled from birth, and you thought you had it. And so Luke adds another detail. He's never walked, and you go, this is perfect. This is a great opportunity for the gospel. Here comes a great sign and wonder of God. He's going to do a great missionary work through the life and preaching of Paul. And yet what happens? It's not salvation. It's rejection. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because we all have in us this idea that says, you know, if God would do this, I would believe in him. If God could work that, then I would trust him. And what is Luke saying? Luke is saying the same thing Jesus said. Miracles have never saved anyone. Jesus saves. Remember that story about the rich man Lazarus? If you'll just send somebody, send them to tell them, someone from the dead, which would be an incredible reality, and yet how does it finish? If they have not believed the prophets before and yet have killed them, they will not believe even one who is resurrected from the dead. Miracles do not save. Only Jesus saves. That's true for this man and that's true for you and me. 
There is no measure of miracle that you need other than the application of the Spirit applying redemption to your life. No miracle will save, only Jesus. And so what do these guys say? It's a powerful statement. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. What would you do if someone said that to you? You have just done something quite impressive. You've healed them. We don't believe in that still going on. But you've done something like that. And they look at you and they say, the gods have come down from heaven. What would you do? How would you respond? Now, they're talking in a different language. So before you jump on Paul and Barnabas and you're wondering, why did it take you guys so long? It's because Luke is telling you. They're not talking to them in ordinary language. They're talking in Lyconian. And as smart as Paul was, he didn't know every single language of the world. And so he doesn't seem to understand what's happening, but it will become very clear to him, and he does respond. Why are these people saying that? There's a rich legend. I'm not a literature major, and so I will confess I have not read this work. I did have to read some of it, but some of you perhaps have read it. It's a large work. It's written by a man by the name of Ovid, and he had a kind of a a life's work, and it was called Metamorphosis. And there are multiple books, but in two of them, book seven or eight, kind of in both, they kind of function like chapters. He's actually talking about this city of Lystra. And do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about Zeus and Hermes. They came down from heaven and they visited Lystra. They went to a thousand homes looking for anybody, somebody to show them hospitality. And they received none. And at the very end, there's a, old couple, they show them hospitality. They have nothing. They're poor. They're old. And as Ovid's story goes, well, these gods made their home a temple and gave them immortality. And so what do you have in the city of Lystra? You have people going, we screwed it up the first time. Let's not do it again. And so here is Zeus and Hermes. They have come down from heaven And what's Paul and Barnabas' response? They tear their clothes. They tear their clothes. That's a sign of blasphemy. They're trying to encourage them with something that's altogether different. And so Paul's starting to preach to them. But where would you preach? How would you begin? You certainly wouldn't start with Abraham or Moses or David. They don't have a Bible They have no understanding of the Old Testament. Where would you go to someone who has no view of God, of the Scriptures? How would you begin? They begin humbly, not like Herod in which we just read, who was called God and relished it. These men tear their clothes and say, that is not us. We are not that person. And so they begin by backing them up all the way, not to creation, but before creation. And they say, you need to know something about your creator. You need to know that your creator, it is God. They do not start with promise. They don't start with Jesus. They don't start with salvation. They begin with the creator. Why? Because it doesn't matter where you are in life, geographically, circumstantially, even in history, 
God is always the standard of objective truth. And they begin at the beginning. The beginning is God. And he says to them, God is still the creator, even if you do not know him. And we want you to understand we are not anything different than you. We put our pants on the same way you do. But God is the creator of all things. And he gives them illustration. There's rain and there's sunshine, there's fruit and there's harvest. And all of it is God. God begins, God finishes. And he's telling them, we are foolish to trust in anything else. Did you hear how he says it in verse 15? Men, why are you doing these things? We also are of men, men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. There's a foolishness in our idolatry, in our worship of things that are not of God. Paul says, turn. You have been alienated from God, and what you need is God. Do not live for the things of this world. It's God who creates. It's God who is good, and it is God who governs and God who sustains and it sounds like a very good start to a sermon. But how does it work? How does it finish? It doesn't seem to go very far. And why is that? Because these people wanted God on their terms. They wanted God on their terms. Don't pick on Paul's preaching here. He has not failed to try to preach the gospel. He has not failed in his efforts to try to get to Jesus. He has not failed by failing to be gracious and yet bold. These people were unwilling in conversation to hear it. They did not want to know Christ. They were only willing to listen as long as it fit within their framework. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We do that too, don't we? We're okay hearing about Jesus as long as he fits our understanding. You remember the triumphal entry of Christ, don't you? People singing Hosanna. They added a title, a rightful title, but one they gravely misunderstood. Son of David, even the King of Israel. Here it is, praise Jesus the son of David and the king of Israel. And you know that they're going to stone him later or crucify him later. But why can they at that moment praise him as the king? Because as long as he's the king that they want, they have a lot of praises for him. We do that, don't we? As long as Jesus is exactly the way that I want him, I am good with him. As long as we can talk about a sweet savior that will offer to me blessing and benefit in my profession, in my possessions, in my family, in my circumstances, I want everything to do with Jesus. But as soon as we call him Lord, it's a hard stop. Because when Jesus becomes Lord, it means you are not. It also means you have a problem. And so only one king reigns. And the question is, which king is it? Is it Jesus or is it Danny? And so Paul is preaching to them. And you can see the enemy at work, can't you? He's always working. He is always working at the preaching 
of the word of God. It happens every Lord's Day. Make no mistake. Do you know how he works on the Lord's Day trying to attack? He, he works in the pews. Your minds begin to shift. What's my to-do list? I have a busy week ahead. I forgot to talk to so-and-so. I need these items at the store. My children have been downright terrible. How am I going to discipline them? You can name all of them. He's attacking. He's taking your eyes off of him, off of Christ, off of the truth, and he's giving to you satisfaction in your life. How do I make my life better? He attacks in the pews. He attacks in the pulpit. He wants more funny stories. It's a good thing I'm not funny. He wants more illustrations. He wants shorter sermons. He wants less of the Bible. And if those two things don't work, perhaps you have witnessed his attack. Maybe we don't even have sermons at all. There's a pandemic, go home. Don't turn on your TV or do so in your pajamas and act like you're there to worship. The enemy is always attacking because the enemy is quite clear that the word of God is powerful and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides bone and marrow and it brings life to those who are dead. And those who are wavering, it provides conviction and firmness. And so Paul is trying to preach and the enemy attacks and they stop. And what do they do? They stone him. They throw rocks at him. They wanted more about the messenger than the message. What they wanted was Paul to do good things for them. It's a hard question. Do you come in to church wanting to worship God or worship man? Do you need more entertainment, better songs, more illustrious presentations, more comfortable seats or whatever it might be? Or have you come to worship the one true and living God? And so they stoned him. Could you imagine perhaps what Paul is thinking as these rocks are being thrown through the air, not at his feet, they're hitting his body, they're hitting his face, could Paul perhaps be thinking, Stephen, I was there. I participated. I signed the certificate. They stoned him so much that they'd drag him out the city as though he were dead. I think in context, you could understand scripturally, this is probably the place in which Paul begins to write the epistle of Galatians. Do you remember what he says towards the very end of that epistle? From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I don't think he meant that sentimentally. You see this scar? Do you see my pain? It's because I gave it all. They stoned me. I gave it all for Christ. And so what does Paul do? 
You imagine the disciples come. His eyes are closed. All of a sudden, an eye opens, begins to move. Limbs are beginning to function, albeit wobbly. And he rises. I would ask for help. Paul marches right back into the city. How incredible. What would it take for you to march back into that city? How many converts do you need for a successful missions trip? We don't know the number. We will later read about two very important ladies, Lois and Eunice, the mother and grandmother of Timothy. What is a successful missionary trip? I don't know if you'd want to look at Paul unless you're signing up for it. That's what they did. That's how it went. But what was Paul and Barnabas giving their focus to? They've experienced a lot. They've seen a lot. They're reporting to the church what happened. And what do they focus on? What did they give their emphasis in this missions effort? To the planting of churches. That's what they did. They planted churches. They gave themselves to the one thing that God has promised. The one thing that the gates of hell will not prevail against. His church. He only has one plan. It's called church. What's the best form of evangelism? Church. What's the best form of discipleship? Church. What's the best form of worship? Church. Of teaching, of training, of instruction, it's church. You cannot, you will not get better than church. Morning and evening, it is the greatest call and gathering of God's people. It's a taste of what is to come. And so we should never entertain the thought that says, you can have too much church. You can never have too much church. It's the greatest place where the gathered saints get together. And God calls it church. And he gives a promise. Why would they plant churches? It's because of what he said. Luke tells you in verse 27, they gathered the church. They declared all that God had done. All that God had done. As the blood is probably still scabbing over with Paul, he is saying all that God has done. It's not merely the plan of God. It is the plan of God. It is also the purpose and practice of God. It is his work, not yours. It does not stifle evangelism or any ministry. It empowers it because you have one who is way beyond and above who has promised such a result. I will build my church. The harvest is plentiful. Go and tell them the great news of Christ. It's all of God. It is his plan and it is his work. And that's why Paul goes back into the city because he knows I don't have a presentation that I can give in which I can save them. I cannot persuade anybody. I cannot make atonement for anybody, but Jesus can. And therefore I will give it all. We want to be a church 
I don't mean just any church. I mean Smyrna Presbyterian Church. We want to be a church that sends missionaries to plant churches. We want to be a church who shares the gospel around us and bringing them to church. We want to be a church, which you just saw this morning, who trains up those who are younger in the ways of God, in his word. But we want to be a church who prays for the work of God because we cannot do it ourselves. It is merely the work of God. And you can imagine how uncomfortable these people would have been because what does Luke say? God did it, and what did God do? He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, that would have been an unpopular missions report to a bunch of Jewish people. What has God done? Wait, they don't like us. They don't look like us. They don't eat like us. They don't live like us. They're nothing like us. And yet God has done something. They're gonna pick this up here in Acts 15 and moving forward. That's how you know that God's in it. He has cared for all people, all of them, every one of them. And so what do we give our attention to? The same thing that Paul and Barnabas did. You plant churches. You strengthen the churches is what they said in verses 21 and 22. You strengthen the churches by telling them to continue in their faith. Isn't that a question How would you encourage someone who just came to know Christ, who's dealing with great opposition? There's probably a lot of very good answers, but Paul says, continue in the faith. Persevere. It's not about what happened yesterday. It's what you're doing today. Be steadfast. Do not turn back and do not stand still. Keep moving. Trust him who made you and who saves you. They strengthened the churches by telling them to continue in their faith. They focused on elders, appointing elders. What's the mark of a good church? The Reformation told you is the preaching of God's word, the visible word in the sacraments, church discipline. That is church government. How do you pray for missions? Pray for elders. How do you pray for this church? You pray for your elders. How do you pray for the missions work across seas? You pray that God would raise up elders The people of God need shepherds, those whom love him and will lay their life down for him. And then lastly, what did they focus on? Paul was very honest about the Christian life, wasn't he? Verse 22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in their faith and told them through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That word must there. It's in connection. It's the same word that will show up in Acts 17, talking about the mustness or the necessity that Christ Jesus must suffer. It's a consistent pattern. If you want to follow Christ, there's a mustness about the Christian life that says there will be opposition, there will be suffering. Jesus told them, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. Take up your cross daily if you want to follow me. Lose your life if you want to find it. There's no teaching in the Bible that says if you come to Christ, your life will be easier, will have less problems in it. There's a hard thing to consider. I want to say it in front of you. 
you might be sitting here this morning and you might say, I hear what you're saying. I see no opposition. I've had no difficulty. I see no suffering. And I ask you, is it because you don't talk about Jesus? Is it because what satisfies your heart more than anything is the satisfaction before men? I assure you, brothers and sisters, if you want to please God, you know very well what I'm talking about, what Luke is saying. You have experienced this mustness. And what it has done, it has cemented your feet on truth. And you can say as Luther, I will not, I cannot recant. It is not safe. It is not right. There's a mustness about the Christian life. This first missions conference, it was, it was in the Lord's house. And it was all about the Lord's work. I hope we have a missions conference like that. We all gather together to hear the affection, the influence, the attention, the investment in planting churches, no matter the investment. For it has a promise from God on high, I'm building my church and nothing will stop me. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you that your love surpasses all of our understanding of life and even in the next life. Because even as we see this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and their experience of both preaching and people believing and preaching and people opposing. They experience great deals of temptation and persecution. None of it compares to what your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did on our behalf. And all we can say is praise be to you, that we might humble ourselves, that we might find ourselves not only in Christ but living for Christ. And so help us, O Lord, not to be such a people who want you on our own terms, but who follow Christ and preach him faithfully no matter where we are and no matter what we're doing. And may we find, perhaps as we look out and say, it's such a hard time, may we find it to be such a delightful time that there is no difficulty in this world that will overcome your purpose and plan. We have much confidence here this morning to go out and tell others of Christ and bring them to church. May you add to your church by your grace and for your glory. We pray in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.